You're listening to an Mpavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hi, everybody. Um, Welcome. I think the holiday uh, spirit has got to me earlier and um, I realised how disorganised I was to to kick this off this evening. Anyway, it could be very casual um, to the point where we were hoping we could get more of a circular formation so everyone could chip in their thoughts on this uh, very interesting conversation, we hope. So, first of all, I... um, just wanted to introduce tonight and then hand over to Stuart Harrison, who I'm sure you all know, who will be uh, comparing the evening. And we are just going to keep it as a presentation, a, a discussion, not a series of presentations. Um, Stuart is an architect uh, at Harrison White. He's also the current Open House president and some of you may also know him from his former hosting of Restoration Australia. So dedicated to all things heritage. Um, I thought just as a beginning, we also, the reason why we're here tonight is because as part of a package for the Melbourne Melbourne Award for Urban Design, which one of KTA's projects received last year for the Queen and Collins project, part of the winning package was to be able to curate one of these M Pavilion sessions. So here we are. And we decided, we thought, given the what that project was was about, which was this contemplation of city flourishing of flows and urbanism we in the context of heritage. So we thought this was a good way to think about this entanglement between heritage and urban design tonight with our panel. Just to, as a way into this, uh, some of you may have seen the Aldo Rossi prompt that was part of the um, the media around this event and I thought now was quite a good moment just to ask some further questions relating to that as before I hand over to Stuart. So, Aldo Rossi calls valued fabric the permanence. Permanence being, and I quote, a past we are still experiencing. Permanences present two aspects. They can be considered as propelling elements or as pathological ones. Artifacts that enable us to understand the city in its totality or artifacts that appear as a series of isolated elements that we can, <coughs> excuse me, we can link only tenuously to an urban system. So I remember when I first read this again in preparing the um, heritage address a few years ago, it made me think about what extent of change is necessary for our valued permanences to be a propelling element rather than a pathology what change is required to enable life and vitality over urban death and decay. No, no, no need to pull our punches here. Um, a balance seeming to be need to be struck between reverence of the original architecture or artefact and some degree of change in order to sustain a vital and live future within a broader urban system. 
So when we explore how we might change, and I think that is partly the big question tonight, how do we manage change? Um, what, what are some of the questions we might ask around guiding that? What might unlock a site, integrate it with the flows and networks of a broader urban system or its neighbourhood? Whose history are we, um, are we working with? Are we seeing? Are we acknowledging? That's a, a further big question for us and the extent of transformation that we think is, um, is required. I think the only other thing before I hand over to Stuart is to say um, more and more heritage of some sort is, a pro is always a, pro a condition of anything happening. There is no site without heritage. Um, there is always something we start with. It's what we choose to see or acknowledge in that. And then what we do that as a starting point, whether it's for material resourcefulness or because of issues around cultural memory and practices. So on that note, I'm going to hand over to Stuart and we can make a start. And we really do encourage some questions from the audience. So please um, jump in. Thanks. Thanks, Kirsten. And uh, first of all, I'd like to formally start tonight with an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors and their elders, past, present and to the future. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands where anyone is listening to a recording of this event. So yes, I'm Stuart Harrison and I want to introduce our uh, panel tonight and there has been a late uh, scratching uh, on the panel. Um, Christine Phillips, who uh, you may have been expecting to see here tonight, who uh, is a wonderful uh, architect and friend uh, and academic, uh, has unfortunately come down with the, uh, the old COVID-19. So um, that was a late scratching just last night. Um, and so I was able to um, persuade Kirsten Thompson, um, who is uh, the curator with her office of tonight's program, to come in at the last minute with some reluctance, I must say, to, <laughs> I just want to curate it. I don't want to, everyone's sick of me. I'm going, I'm, none of those things are true. Um, so uh, Kirsten's joining our discussion tonight, which is, which is great, um, but it was the intention that Kirsten wouldn't be here. She's already been here once this week, so um, it is a big week for the M Pavilion for, uh, for Kirsten Thompson Actics. Um, and, um, of course, the party is happening later, directly after this, so we'll make sure we finish uh, promptly so that we don't stop that um, important part of the evening. So, our first speaker to introduce is Kirsten Thompson, who will be known to all of you, I would assume, um, and Director of Kirsten Thompson Architects. Next to me is Dan Hill, and I've known Dan for some uh, years, Dan is a sort of international uh, man of mystery, um, ha had spent some time in Melbourne years ago uh, at Arab, um, after some time with the BBC, uh, then went back over, you were in Italy for a while, Finland, then Italy, then, uh, then UK, then, then Sweden, I wasn't joking. And now back with us here, and the University of Melbourne is very fortunate to have Dan uh, running things up there, or running part of things up up there. So Dan Hill, whose um, fantastic investigation into, um, I guess, some of the external forces around design has always fascinated me. And we interviewed Dan years ago on our on our little radio show. Uh, and Dan's book, um, Dark Matter and Trojan Horses, 
It was a really seminal text and I encourage anyone uh, to have a look at that. Sorry, Dan, I have not read out the pre-prepared bio in any way there. It's going to be a reasonably uh, loose sort of evening, I think, as Kirsten was alluding to. <laughs> Excellent. Um, Felicity Watson, I've also known for a little bit of time. We were on a panel last year at the planning conference um, and Kirsten was there as well, actually. We were down trying to convince the planners of a few things. Um, <laughs> and Felicity Watson is a NARM-based heritage practitioner who has over 20 years of experience across consultancy, public history and the non-for-profit sector uh, and local government. With a multidisciplinary approach across heritage, history and urban planning, Felicity is passionate about working with communities to support the contribution that cultural heritage can make to vibrant, livable, sustainable cities. Uh, Felicity is currently working as heritage planner one of Australia's fastest growing municipalities after recently leaving uh, National Trust um, at, at, towards the end of last year. And Felicity is, and all of us I think are interested in this, uh, particularly Kirsten, around this idea of how design interfaces with heritage. What are the contemporary ways in which we might think through heritage? What are the opportunities for heritage, particularly now that it also involves this sort of world of sustainability as well through reuse? And as, um, as Kirsten has uh, outlined, uh, KTA have set the sort of prompt of digging out a bit of Aldo Rossi. And for those of you who are not familiar with Aldo uh, Rossi, I asked um, just before I was here, I was, I was doing a um, talk to some UTS students online and I was just surveying them on the le general level of awareness of Aldo Rossi and it was not high. I, th not I think I'm showing my generation of... Um University time, definitely. Yes, it, we're probably not inappropriate to mention the decade uh, of the 1980s um, here. So Rossi was incredibly... So for those who don't know, uh, Rossi uh, was Italian uh, academic and architect, very prolific architect, um, practised uh, widely um, between in the 60s until the 90s, died tragically in a car accident in the 1990s. And Rossi was one of those rare things. He was both an incredible architectural thinker uh, and also uh, a particularly interesting architect and incredibly influential, like incredibly. And what Kirsten's just alluded to is uh, his importance in architectural education. Um, so Rossi in the uh, 80s was a significant figure. Uh, by the time I was practice, uh, studying, um, a bit later, not too much later, a bit later in the, in the 90s, that was at the tail end of Rossi's influence a little bit. And Rossi's often associated with broadly with architectural postmodernism. And indeed the text um, that uh, that um, quote is from, and this idea of the pathological and the propeller is from Architecture of the City. And interestingly, Rossi publishes this book in 1966 in Italian. Uh, it doesn't, at uh, same time, same year as Venturi's and Scott Brown's uh, a Complexity and Contradiction in Architecture. It doesn't actually become incredibly popular in the English-speaking world, at least, until the 80s, because it doesn't get translated into English uh, until 1982 um, and published um, through opposition books at the time. So, so it's that point that Rossi becomes quite influential as a kind of thinker in the English-speaking world, and hence, I think, it then affects um, people studying in that period, in the, in the 80s period. And I think what we're seeing here is uh, a critical reflection on the sources of some of these ideas around progressive, what you might call progressive heritage. So that's me setting the stage around uh, Rossi and this theme that Kirsten's already outlined around um, the pathological uh, versus uh, the propeller. These ways of viewing uh, heritage, preservation 
and in some ways Rossi, um, I guess, preempts some of the contemporary approaches to heritage that we have now. Simultaneously with the birth of the conservation movement broadly um, and the, all the popularisation of it, Rossi begins to think about how you might be able to approach these in an interesting way. He surra Rossi surrounded himself with uh, historic fabric. He's, he's in Italy, he's near Padua, um, and he sees this all around him and he sees history alive. And this is particularly central to this idea of the propeller. So I'm going to start with you, Dan, because I know you've spent some time in that part of the world. What are your takes on this idea of uh, heritage as best served through being a kind of active living thing, a thing propelled through time? I don't know whether to answer that based on my time in Italy or not. I think the bit of Italy that um, you were talking about, that Padua and Padova and the Veneto generally um, is quite functional, lots of it. And it's bound up, it's a very industrial area, very flat. It's not a kind of traditional romantic landscape around there at all. It's kind of a series of plains and shifting mists and rivers that kind of appear and disappear and get culverted and shoved around based on the needs of uh, Benetton and Electrolux and companies like that. So um, it's kind of interesting. It's very different to our sense of Italy in terms of uh, Rome or even Milan and Turino. So um, there's something that maybe Rossi's getting at there with this sense of propelling and the very um, the imperative of cities to keep moving. It's something a little bit that Saskia Sassen talks about. What makes a city resilient is that it's incomplete and indeterminate and it's complex, that it's constantly shifting over time and it's always, you know, like a shark almost moving forwards. It can't sleep in that way. Um, and so that sense of incompleteness is part of that propulsion. And the indeterminacy means the, um, the use of the space or the need for the space is shifting constantly as well. So a church is one thing and then it becomes something else and then it becomes a workshop or a studio and then it switches back to a church again. So personally, uh, when I was at school in the 80s, <laughs> at college in the 80s, I, I was doing urban sociology, not architecture. And I'm, my way of answering your question is to start with the culture, if you like, that being the reason we make buildings or places or cities to create culture. And then understanding that the building is kind of a secondary function there. It's sort of um, an enabler or a disabler or a prompt or, as you said, it's a propeller or a platform or a stage or all of those things. But it's actually to focus more on the culture first and then ask those questions. What are cities about? What are they about right now? Where are they going next? And then we're less caught up in the particular form of the building. And it becomes less a question of cornices and finials or whatever. And it's become, it becomes more about what is this place about? And uh, that's a good question. And then, of course, we can think about what do we then preserve that tells us something about this place, where it came from, where it is now, and where it's going next. So, yeah, I'd want to, I'd want to I suppose, to start to answer your question just by kind of separating out, um, in, in my mind at least, this isn't about the particular architectural form of a building that's important necessarily. It's the culture that produces that thing and then the culture is constantly shifting and some of the building might go with it if it's uh, handy or interesting or provocative and some of it might be completely discarded on that basis. 
Yeah, there's a couple of really things to pick up on there. Um, Ro- Rossi, Rossi was also dealing with uh, uh, the new and, and everything becoming the same. He was dealing with an increasingly similar place in Italy. So, as, as the world was, you know, the idea of a standardised approach to things. So, he, he was interested in, in specificity or, or, or loci or place. And he was resisting those things that he could see emerging in post-war Italy and going, well, hang on. What, and, and that's obviously part of a broader rejection of some of the um, universalising qualities of, of modernism. It, it's a critique. I mean, it is broadly in that postmodern, po- postmodern framework. And I think the other thing to pick up with that is this, this idea of the city. For, for Rossi, uh, it's intrinsic, everything is intrinsically linked to the city. There is no building without the city. There is no city without a, compo- a series of buildings, places and people and forces acting upon it. In, you know, the name of the book, The Architecture uh, and the City, is, is deliberate. This is, this is the idea these things are inseparable. And he sees, you know, as other scholars will see, like Jane Jacobs, he will see the city about far more than just about an individual collection of buildings. Yeah, and just, just briefly then, that past, present, future interplay is really obviously what... Um well, not obviously, but whatever. Japanese metabolism was also trying to get out roughly at the same time, and Kurosawa's work is very much about that sense of, or at least he said, diachronicity, like how can it be in the past and the present and the future simultaneously, and we're constantly moving through those things. And that's interpreted really differently in Japan, um, partly because of materiality and uh, Padova, uh, and if you look across to Venice about... 10 kilometers away, there's, there's wood in Venice, but it's all under the water. <laughs> the stuff on top is in stone. And, and, and um, Kitayama and Nishizawa both point this out, that European cities tend to be made in stone. So they hang around a lot, <laughs> um, just to simplify it. Um, Japanese cities tend to be made in wood, and so they were shifting constantly. And now even when Japanese cities tend to be not made in wood, they still only hang around for about 25 years or so because there's, there's this sense that the culture is not bound up in the materiality. Or if it is, it's um, almost animistically bound to it. It's kind of, there's a spirit in things or there's a connection to the culture which is embedded to some degree in a place, but it doesn't have to exist in the object itself necessarily. So it's kind of, it's got this very kind of fluid sense of the culture driving the city forward. Sometimes that's material made material, and sometimes it's hooked to the place, not material at all. Hence the Japanese sort of comfortableness with old and new. Yeah. Felicity, um, what's your sense of the, the sort of approaches that Rossi began to identify in the, in the 60s, 70s and 80s, and, and how they've led to our, what you might call best practice understanding of how we deal with heritage today? Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> so I'm not a scholar of Rossi, so I probably can't um, speak in detail ne- ne- to his ideas. Ne- neither am um, I. <laughs> but what I can talk about is the practice of heritage in Australia today and the paradigm that has emerged from the conservation movement, um, which happened internationally and um, took hold um, in Australia in around the 1950s and 60s. Um, and in many ways shaped the systems of protection that we have today. And it's really interesting that conception of... um, the Japanese conception of significance around buildings and how it isn't necessarily connected to fabric or the permanency of fabric. Um, And it's in some ways more about the process of creation and continuing connections to cultural practices and that's very much at odds with the western ideas that we have 
about heritage that have shaped um, a lot of the heritage protection laws in Australia. Um, and so the legacy of that here is what we see is um, even though there's a, a sort of intellectual and social understanding that heritage is beyond simply the fabric of buildings and, um, you know, what is aesthetically pleasing or architecturally significant. Um, we do look at a broader range of values, including historical significance and social significance. But our um, policies and legislation are almost purely focused on the management of physical fabric. And so that is what is always... Um, prized and protected, um, but it can sometimes be a very blunt way of um, protecting the value of a place or what's significant about it. And so we have a danger, I think. Um, I think historic buildings offer really incredible opportunities for renewal. And um, you just spoke about Jane Jacobs, and one of the things that she talked about in The Death and Life of American Cities is the importance of aged buildings within cities, um, you know, which may have heritage significance but may equally be just, you know, old buildings that still happen to be there. And they offer the opportunity for um, diverse users and diverse... Um, businesses and social engagement with those buildings rather than um, privileging highly established and, um, you know, more wealthy businesses. And they're really important for um, diversity, not only in um, the built environment aesthetically and architecturally, but also socially as well. And Melbourne is a wonderful example of that. Um, but what um, a challenge that we're facing now is when heritage protection, rather than offering that opportunity for renewal and change and that sort of living um, heritage actually stifles the potential for renewal in ways that aren't productive and aren't necessarily um, reflective of the values we have as a community. And I think that's um, an uncomfortable um, challenge about the system that we have now. Yeah, and I think that, it, it, that touches on the pathological over the propeller, right? That, that this idea that these things can be constraining, and then where is that balance between allowing and respecting and uh, embracing all our histories, uh, the hard ones uh, as well, and how we work in a contemporary way within that context? It's the sort of on, ongoing challenge. I just think it might be useful for us just to just talk about the um, the brief history of the the borough charter in in Australia and the, and the sort of the coalescing around an approach to conservation more broadly in the 70s in Australia. And one of the things I was looking at recently is the, um, uh, I always get the Athens and the Venice Charter mixed up, but the Venice Charter is 1964, I think, and it's sort of sequential with, or, or, or contemporaneous with, 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 with Rossi's writings. But what we see in a, in throughout the sort of 20th century is a progressive awareness of conservation broadly and then documents that, that come out, Athens Charter before the war, Venice Charter, and then it lands in Australia through the Borough Charter in 79, I think, and that's still the key reference point for how we approach uh, heritage practice in Australia. Felicity, is the Borough Charter still as useful um, for us as it, as it was there? Is it, is, it, is it fit for purpose? 
Yeah, the Borough Charter is a really interesting document because it's been influential not only in Australia but internationally. Um, so Australia, obviously, as a colonial country um, with 250 years of um, colonial heritage and built environment um, is a big contrast to a place like Italy, but um, in the preservation movement and the movement to um, protect um, the significant aspects of our heritage, um, the, the present preservation movement um, was in many ways community-led but also led to the development of the heritage profession and the evolution of, um, of disciplines like urban planning and architecture um, to become specialised in, in heritage um, management. And the creation of the Borough Charter set out best practice principles for the assessment and management of heritage and in many ways it's still very useful and it sets out um, a really important two-part process around heritage management which begins with understanding what is significant um, and undertaking work and research to understand that, um, whether it's a place of architectural significance or whether it might be a place of social value where you need to engage with the community to understand why it's important. And then only when you understand the significance of, place, of a place can you decide on the best way to manage it. And then there are frameworks around how you assess that and the tools that you can use with um, management. But the very big um, challenge with the Borough Charter is that even though, again, it talks about social significance and things like that, it's extremely fabric-focused and it doesn't necessarily allow for um, non-Western conceptions of heritage significance like Indigenous thinking about place and management. And so, in some ways, it's not um, culturally equipped um, to be able to manage the, the types of values that we have and the evolution of those values. So I think um, we just celebrated um, in 2019 a big anniversary of the Borough Charter and there was a lot of reflection about um, whether it's fit for purpose now. And I think that needs to continue. Um, but something that we really need to do is to encourage um, new perspectives and new... Um, really engage with the diversity of our community. And something I'd like to recognise um, is the lack of diversity on this panel, um, which is notable um, and um, something that we should all reflect on, um, but should reflect on more broadly in um, architecture and in heritage management and just always be aware of that and always be considering other perspectives. Yeah, and no, I think that's absolutely absolutely right. Um, Kirsten, I might come to you. That 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 tension that, that Rossi identifies a, a, a around um, the pathological and the propeller. You you can trace those those tensions about how to approach approach heritage all the way back to the nineteenth century, back to Ruskin and Morris and others. What as a practicing architect and and the curator of this event, what is your uh, sense of how we approach? these things in the very complex contemporary space that we work in, particularly in issues that Felicity's just raised. Mm. 
Um, yeah, thank you, Felicity. That was a um, very useful series of questions and challenges to us. Um, I will say that um, the I think I think particularly on your last point, and it goes to this question of what history or heritage it is that we choose to engage with. It's um, a and I I do constantly find the blind spots in that. It's a very particular appreciation of heritage that typically gets registered, especially in the sorts of heritage overlays that we deal with. And we do find that part of our role in working within the context of heritage overlays and heritage buildings is to use that as a chance to challenge some of the defaults around this because we think that there are a lot of prejudices about values coded into um, into how we appreciate uh, particularly a built heritage over a, a cultural one um, or one especially around practices. So, and, and I think as we were talking before, your work at Wyndham and the sorts of um, heritage understandings there that are, um, for instance, around you know Aboriginal cultural heritage there and how that is manifesting in um, urban change is really, really interesting in that regard. I don't know if I've actually answered your question, um, Stuart, except to say that we do, um, we often find ourselves challenging some of the key defaults around heritage. And I think it's because this question of our frameworks, their appropriateness, their need to change um, is a really important thing. And as someone said to me recently at a, a conference last week, she said, something like gravity, I don't dispute, but something like the regulation frameworks that we work with in architecture, whether it's building codes, performance codes, heritage codes, they are constructions. They can change, they can evolve to reflect different um, community change as well. And I definitely think that is something that we need to do and far too much emphasis on the um, purity of the artefact over it as something that enables urban flow and connection and new opportunities. So, Could I just jump in with an observation? Um, the reason why I was so excited to be invited to be on this panel was because um, some of the examples of the work that your office has done um, have been really exceptional examples of how you can challenge the existing frameworks. And a couple of the, the places um, that really inspire me, um, like Broadmeadows Town Hall and the Lyceum Club, um, the work that you did around them engaged really deeply with community and with um, understanding community values and what, what the purpose of those places were and then how that informed the built form. And notably, neither of those buildings had a heritage overlay at the time that you um, undertook that work. So it, there was, wasn't that imperative to engage with the heritage fabric because of a policy in place in the planning scheme. It was because it really added value and um, was really critical aspect of those projects and I think that's really instructive um, about how we can start to challenge those frameworks um, to you know demonstrate that we can get even better outcomes. And I think that's that thing of social value um, 
and, and goes to that point I said earlier, I don't understand anyone saying a site has no heritage. There is always something and the mistake we made in the 20th century perhaps and the notion of the tabula rasa is this dream that you could ever have something outside of history or heritage. But it probably goes to your, um, your thinking too, Stuart, around elective heritage, maybe... I'm going to start yeah, questioning and, and, you now. <laughs> and Broadmeadows Town Hall is a is a wonderful project. Um, I assume most of you are familiar with it up in Broadie. And, and Felicity's right. It, it, it's a great uh, building that builds on its, its social history. It's also a great bit of work, a great building, and, and it's got better. It's not an adaptive reuse project because the, the use has actually stayed this, broadly the same. But I use as a great example of this thing um, Kirsten has just touched on called elective heritage, which which is that which, which is what Felicity has just identified. It's where people choose to retain something, even though they didn't have to. It, it's it comes out of an experience of people wanting the authenticity, or they just like it, or they like the sustainability and all the embedded carbon in existing buildings. There's a lot of pathways to building retention that aren't just about heritage, and the sort of the growth of elective heritage, I think, show, shows that really really clearly. But Dan, you wanted to chip in before. Uh, yeah, and I've forgotten what it was. <laughs> but in, no, I think to build on this a little bit, I think it's um, the idea of heritage being something that then we construct as opposed to something that is imposed or is standing separate that we um, we bow to almost. And so it gets exactly as you said to very deep and complex uh, terrenalias like questions and the. Um, Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, and you know it depends on the what, what are you looking at. And when heritage is uh, is reduced in a very simplistic way to a facade or the particular form, without digging deeper into what is that actually about, then we're getting into the kind of beyond that evidence question. And um, yeah, within that, if if buildings also obviously they're part of their meaning, one of the many meanings buildings has is to represent what we stand for as a society. They it's ideologies made material or form in some way, or ideas or histories made concrete, um, sometimes literally. <laughs> um, then equally, what we choose to discard also tells us something about that as well. What we, what we choose to decide is waste or not of value um, is equally then a design, just as the building is a design. So the law and the, or the policy making is something that is constructed, therefore it's a design, it's a fabric or a material that we can choose at any point to represent, this is what we stand for as a society. So in, in, a, in an Australia now, what we stand for as a society, whatever, however we decide to have that conversation, it's a lot easier if we have about, about a specific place, because we can ground it a bit. Um, but that is something then to construct the idea of heritage around, as opposed to, you know, as you pointed out, very actually, old-fashioned, um, not that old-fashioned is wrong actually, it's more the colonial aspect that's wrong, European conceptions about what's important in contemporary Australia, that, yeah. that would yeah. be not a good place to start. And I think, and I think when you're speaking, in the sense that, um, uh, that buildings speak of their, their culture, if you like, I think one of the main things we are wrestling with is when we have a heritage building highly esteemed in a conventional sense of heritage codes and significance, um, but it speaks of a colonial heritage and there is a requirement for that institution to speak of an alternate understanding of heritage, then we hit a really difficult um, 
brick, stone, because the wall. frame Because the frameworks are completely around. It, it just cannot understand what it might mean to need to change how a building speaks. And in fact, I was um, reflecting on a, a project going back through some um, heritage advice, actually, from our consultant. I think it was Bryce Rayworth, and he had a lovely way of putting it, that um, a building in its heritage acclaimed state under these conventional ways might speak one voice. There is no reason why through additions or change it can't have another voice and you can have many voices. There's not this need for a singular one and the preservation of that as somehow dominant. And this probably goes to one of the biggest bees in my bonnet with heritage is why a um, certain type of again, most likely colonial heritage will always trump something new, why we can't have an understanding of peer-to-peer -peer or this non-deferential understanding of new relative to the esteemed heritage artefact. Yeah, I wanted to come to this idea of deference versus equivalency that, that all too often, um, and I think you touched on this, Kristen, in your recent project, the Melbourne Holocaust uh, Museum, uh, which challenged a whole lot of conventions around setbacks, but also as an elective heritage project. Um, there was no heritage protection on the existing existing building there, and that allowed a certain way of sort of resetting the agenda of how you might think about an existing in building and, and its encapsulation. Um, I think the other thing around, um, around contemporary heritage practice is this idea of um, setbacks that you've, you've, you've talked about previously, and what, as a default a way of approaching a kind of um, an, appro an approach of deference, of trying to basically become invisible. And for those of us who've practised in the heritage space, that always is the default position. It's like, yep, yep, this is great, but we just don't want to see it. And I think, and this is what I always find bizarre, this, if we just unpick that regulation for a moment, what is at its core, this idea that seeing uh, something is a problem, that you will be affronted by this vision. And it fascinates me that a vision affronting compared to an operational, a function, a cultural affronting trumps it. I don't understand why. Sorry to use that word twice, Trump. <laughs> That's really bad. Um, but, but you get the gist. Why, what is it about this visual test that has become... a the most common way in which a building is assessed, apart from all the other ways that we might contemplate it. It's, yeah. I couldn't agree more. Um, and as a heritage practitioner, I think it's hard for heritage professionals and heritage lovers and advocates to let go of some of the progress that's been made in terms of um, achieving statutory protection and statutory recognition. Um, but it's, it's challenging because the way that the system works is that um, heritage protection isn't just about recognition, it's about control and it's about yeah, privileging um, the old over the new and that isn't always appropriate and we don't always have um, flexibility in the way that that um, is achieved. Um, but it's the age-old problem of um, planning, which is the policy is trying to protect us from the worst possible outcomes rather than encouraging the best possible outcomes. And I think that's led to a lot of really mediocre outcomes that aren't good for contemporary design or for heritage and what's the legacy of that? 
Yeah, I mean, Dan's observation that every, every all systems are, are forms of design, and, and, and the system is designed to, to for the bottom, uh, and it, it very it struggles sometimes to I encourage excellence in this space. So we're going to open it up. Kirsten was right. We're going to try and have a bit of a conversation with a broader network of you now, and we're going to start that by seeing if any of the KTA staff, who are the co-curators of this event, um, um, looking at Toby Pond lurking around in the background um, and others, if, if you want to make a question to the panel before we open it up. Thank you, Stuart. Um, I think my question is to do with the idea of the past and the present and the future. And I think we constantly bump into the idea that heritage protection stop at the past and we constantly are arguing for the need for heritage to adapt not just to the now but to the people for in the next 10, 20, 50, 100 years. And I feel like that just doesn't exist in our assessment of what we have to deal with on day one. Is there a way that you can see, Felicity, that we might have that conversation with heritage practitioners to say, you know, we're not just designing for what we're seeing now but for a future that exists that we can't imagine and we, we can't be constrained by thinking that's 100 years old? Yeah. I absolutely agree with that and it's really challenging because um, the system that we're operating within is really, you know, geared to look at that historic fabric and where it is now and not, you know, we're making decisions for the benefit of today's community and not necessarily future communities and I think we need to ask some really hard questions about that. Um, something I've thought about is you know, the continuing, um, you know, volume of places that are being protected over time as time passes and our understandings of what is significant change. But we never go back and edit what has already been protected. And, you know, do we, we, do we need to make some really, like, hard decisions about just letting some things go so that we've got those opportunities for renewal? And how can we build in those opportunities for having those conversations within the approval system? Um, it can be quite challenging depending on where you're operating. I, just to say, I mean, that's just a broader point with design as well. <laughs> we, um, and particularly with architecture, that we, we're not... Um, often being asked to or practicing thinking about the future much, ironically. You know, we, we build around the present and, it, and sometimes the past, as you're pointing out. But there are many design um, philosophies, disciplines, theory of loose parts, adaptive design, whatever you want to call it, which are entirely attuned to enabling maximum diversity for future possible generations, enabling a building to shift and adapt over time. That isn't the way that things are often practiced because you usually, as you know, you probably have a, a client paying you for the thing right now and you're getting a percentage of the construction cost. You're not getting any real benefit from any future iteration or use, usually with practiced architecture, right? Which is absurd. I mean, that's, I mean what a strange way of running a, an entire discipline or a profession. And many other designers would see the value in saying, well, if I designed this system in this way or this place or this in environment, and then I can go back and do this, and then I can go back and do this, and I can adjust it and adapt over time, and I'm deriving value from each one of those things as a, an alternate ad or something for, far more fundamental. So it's not, this isn't even just about heritage, it's the way that we've actually practiced design generally. And if we opened that up, that broader idea, quite possibly would you know, do a better job for heritage as well. Um, other KTA staff who might be lurking around with a question? Do we have any who want to put their hands up before we go to 
general questions. Kirsten, is anyone I should call on in particular from your office? Okay, all right. Let's open it up to, the, to everyone here. Um, question at the back. Come to you, Jeff. Um, hello to the panel. Thank you for a great talk. Um, I'm interested to know what authority should decide on what constitutes an appropriate heritage response when heritage advisors to council perhaps are failing us, who or what can step in to support heritage in all its complex forms? Well, that's a really challenging one because um, ultimately the decision makers are often elected officials through our councillors or um, members of VCAT who have various um, different areas of expertise, um, not necessarily in relation to heritage and architecture, although sometimes they do. Um, so there's inconsistency in the way those policies are applied and the bluntness of some of these policies um, leads to these, um, you know, difficult outcomes. And um, like all practitioners, heritage consultants are constrained by um, their brief and by the planning controls and, and what, they're, what they're working within. So it's not always possible to get... Um, the best outcome, but something that is really important and having moved into local government, um, the local government sphere, it has such an incredible impact on people's day-to-day -day lives and the world around us. It's really where all the decisions get made that we actually see. And a really important thing that we need to do is educate and have an ongoing dialogue with our decision makers about what constitutes good design, what constitutes good heritage responses and how that contributes to, um, you know, not just good historical outcomes but social wellbeing and social um, diversity and vibrancy. So I think that's something that as professionals we can all take a role in doing. Kirsten, do you want to tackle that? I mean, from is it about uh, getting um, a combination of uh, designers and heritage people in the same space, conceptually and literally? Mm. Um, yeah, to look, it's, it, it is a really good question. Um, and, I, and I was thinking how to solve it when you asked that and thought, yes, is it having a range of intelligences directed towards the question of how to work <coughs> or work with what is? Um, that was one thought. And the other one... Um, I've actually lost my train Dan's of thought as well. Dan's got an answer to designing got, yeah, the solution. Yeah, no, you got, <laughs> what do we do? What no, do, we do it, it is a bit like what, what she said. But, um, and Anna, I think you know, you're a designer. I can throw the question back at you, right? Because we can't answer you because we haven't done the design work. So because if we said a minute ago that it's like heritage is something to be designed. So if we were then able to say, as Kirsten just did, so imagine there's a building or a situation or a context or a place or a landscape or a street. When I did a project in Sweden, it was about streets. And then we said, let's design the agency required to produce that kind of outcome, as opposed to saying, this is who we're currently dealing with, transport planners versus these people versus these people. Ideally, you'd have exactly as you said, a range of intelligences organized around that system in question. It would include a heritage person in the traditional understanding of the word, for sure, but it would also include a sociologist or anthropologist. It would include a, a biologist, probably. You'd also have an architect. You'd have a First Nations, exactly. You'd have engagement, you'd have the local community, that, out of that kind of 
brew would become a very interesting way of handling heritage. And so we, we have to design the system based on, again, the conditions that we're trying to create for now. Do you know, do you know does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, I think the framework idea is a very interesting one. And, um, you know, for instance, why do we still um, have setback to heritage facade um, guidelines? Um, and, and given the conversation earlier about I guess, questioning the colonial foundation for so much of the heritage that is given priority in our city. Um, you know, what, what do we say now about neighbourhood character, which every local government area is clinging to? Um, so I, I guess it's just a cause for question and cause for interrogation. And, um, but the frameworks are still the things that um, so many people in decision-making roles lean on. Yeah. And, and frankly, the, the misuse of heritage for very spurious planning grounds. I mean, we all know it comes into play. It's a really, unfortunately, it gets exploited and rolled out when other planning grounds are harder to substantiate. And, and that is an abusive heritage. And I will say too, when you have a poorer performing heritage advisor, um, unfortunately, it actually diminishes the value of heritage and discourages its use by being, you know, unreasonable about or closed to what you might do with it. In fact, I think that's the most dangerous thing of all is bad heritage advisors in councils who are not able to see this opportunity. Yeah. Felicity, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I just wanted to jump in and just talk a little bit more about the... Um, including Indigenous design and the voice of First Peoples in the mix. And I think that's a really exciting um, area of practice and um, that's really evolving quickly in um, architecture and urban design, particularly in um, Melbourne and Victoria. There's a lot happening in that space. And it offers an opportunity to incorporate, you know, deep-rooted heritage values in the landscape and in country in contemporary design in a way that um, it embodies living culture and the evolving culture of traditional owners. And um, a really interesting example of that um, is the level crossing removals Indigenous design guidelines. And that offers a framework to um, collaborate with traditional owners to come up with good um, urban design outcomes that go beyond just, you know, including design motifs in um, infrastructure to actually um, having kind of spatial organisation that reflects Indigenous values and um, landscape architecture and things like that. So I think that's something that we should all embrace and working in a growth area council, that's something I'm really excited about because when I was thinking about the, this topic and... Um, reflecting on the value of heritage in the city. I was thinking about the new cities and suburbs that we're creating um, in the landscape, in this growth area, and how they don't have that built environment. So we don't have that kind of fine grain um, of heritage value that's visible um, within the landscape in a kind of colonial way. But what we can do is really connect with the, um, the values that traditional owners have for country and to sort of bring that up and reflect it in new design to create um, a new language that's of that place and that's distinctive and that creates a sense of place. So yeah. I think that's really exciting. 
It's the myth of the uh, the greenfield site. It's always been a myth, and 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 you've got at least always got at least two layers on those sites. You've got all the First Nations histories, and then you've got often an agricultural layer of history that actually did have all kinds of systems of organisation as well. And and these are often sort of disregarded all too quickly in, in the false belief that it's it's a it's a blank slate. The tabula rasa, unfortunately, in those communities is still pretty in those development models is still pretty pervasive. Jeff Robinson, you had your hand up. Before, a quick question for you. We're getting very close to 6.30 and, and the partying and the drinking, so we won't, we won't go on too much further. Thanks very much. Um, so I'm Jeff Robinson. I'm a sustainability consultant. I'm also on the uh, Victorian Heritage Council. Um, but I don't speak for the council in what I'm going to say now. Um, I suppose my question, a lot of the conversation to date has been around... Um, the efforts we go to preserve colonial heritage. And I'd like to just to have a little bit of a think about what about the preservation of our more recent heritage? Whether that's the, you know, beautiful um, uh, mid-century modern buildings that are being knocked over in Beau Morris so that somebody can put some, you know, high-density building to the edges um, McMansion, let's call it that way, or even in our city, when we look at um, some of the, um, you know, b fine buildings from the 70s or 80s, which have, shall we say, fallen out of fashion. They're not floor-to-ceiling glass, um, but they have real design qualities. And even sometimes the way in which those things get squeezed in so something like Seidler's One Spring Street and, you know, some of the contention of, of, of buildings that are being squeezed into those things there. It's my contention that we cannot afford to continue just knocking over buildings and saying, oh, we'll just put up another one, it'll be fine. Oh, but it'll be sustainable because it'll be six-star hey, what about all the embodied carbon that went into that building over a long period of time? So I'd, I'd just like to change the conversation a little bit and get your views on what's the right mix and how do we preserve what's good from the 50s, 60s, 70s and actually give it a new life and, and, and make it sustainable? Well, let's put that to the panel. It's an excellent point, Jeff. And I think often we're too obsessed with a certain date in, the, in, in history and a sort of certain period of time. Um, does anyone want to tackle the idea of contemporary, modern and contemporary heritage and how we, and how we address this suitable work? Well, speaking as someone who got Federation Square and the Footscray Psychiatric Centre um, on the Victorian Heritage Register, I could not agree more. Um, heritage... And thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, heritage assessment has been so bogged down in like 19th century and early 20th century heritage for a long time and trying to protect the sort of um, last remaining, you know, examples from those eras that it's been hard for people to move on. And um, I think mainstream conceptions about heritage um, find those more recent examples um, more challenging to understand in terms of their aesthetic appeal, but also in terms of... Um, you know, their legacy for the future. And a really good example of that um, we were talking about before um, we began the 
discussion was the brutalist car park in Carlton. Yes, that was big in the news yesterday. The merits of that. Um, we thought we could get some audience participation on that one, if there's anyone burning to say something. Anyway, yep. So, the, the only piece of Carlton that doesn't have a heritage overlay, or didn't. Yeah. It's 100% coverage now. Um, but it's, I jest, but the City of Melbourne have actually done a lot of really interesting work looking at um, the heritage of modernism and um, hopefully moving soon towards postmodernism. Um, but in doing that, also looking at the potential for adaptive reuse. So not just saying, oh, we want to protect this and you have to keep it the same as it was, but how can we use this incredible amount of embodied energy um, to, you know, service new uses and new expectations? So I think there's interesting work happening in, in that space, but um, it is challenging to move the dial um, more towards that um, kind of modernist um, yeah. end of the spectrum. Yeah, to the, the propeller, not the pathological, I yeah. think, if we, to return to Rossi. Does anyone want to add anything quickly to uh, Jeff's excellent point about modern and contemporary heritage? Or should we, if we have one more question? Any more I, questions? I, th I think this, I mean, it's it an incredibly well-made point about this, you know, embodied energy. That, for instance, that would be a much better way of assessing also, to my previous point, the stuff that we're building new. Frankly, most of Melbourne would not be built now on that basis if we were actually caring about energy, for instance. So the stuff that's being built at the, all over the city right now is awful on that front, appalling. So it's a general point well made. We can also use it as part of a heritage discussion and start looking at also then, as you said, with a much finer lens, a more diverse set of frameworks around all of the buildings that exist. And I mean, the, the idea that we're using a colonial view on heritage, which you just said has been implicitly the case, for a long time, coming from Britain, where frankly I'd flatten half of it tomorrow if I had the chance, you know, it's, like, it's absurd and actually incredibly distressing, obviously. So moving away there's real, from There's that, real equity arguments as well around, oh, around heritage. It, 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 I mean, to Felicity's point before about locking things out, um, there, there are some, you know, it does create a stratification at an urban level. Uh, I am going to wrap things up there, however. We've just gone past 6.30. Thanks for those excellent questions. I would like to thank all the collaborators, contributors, uh, and our excellent panel. Please join with me in thanking Kirsten, Felicity, and Dan. And thank you, Stuart. Thank you, and uh, thanks to the M Pavilion for hosting this, Jen and her team, and all the best with bringing this down and building a new one next year. Thank you, everyone, for coming. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. <laughs>